You're listening to Work Tape, episode 67. of the work tape podcast it's your boy money mitchell on the mic once again and uh we got isaac grover as well what's up he's you know kind of the, the brains behind a lot of this operation and i'm just kind of more along for the ride so we're continuing where we left off on the last episode we're going through the wonderful twos yes any of the decades or at least up to a certain point of the decades ending in two um, a lot of very important albums have come out within years where it ends in a two. So uh, last episode, we covered 72, which had just a laundry list of great records. Because we totally didn't care about 42, 52, or 62. Well, I mean, <laughs> si- I mean, here's the deal. 62, if you're a jazz head. Yeah, jazz aficionado. If you're into maybe some of the early, early rock, like 62 has a lot. 52 is mostly just singles because the thing is, is the reason why we I think we cover more of the albums kind of going from 72 onward is that I think albums became more of like a concept and more of a selling point from those decades forward, because a lot of what you had up to then was, you know, pretty much just if there was an album, it was pretty much just a collection of all the singles, you know, that they were putting out and singles was, you know, 45s was the way that they wanted to do it. Actually, the one person who really pioneered the concept album, and I believe we've mentioned this on the podcast already, but Frank Sinatra with in the wee small hours of the morning, that was kind of extremely notable for being um, basically the first concept album. Was he kind of like the Drake of his day, kind of singing about, you know, being in his sad boy hours, but <laughs> in the sad boy hours of the morning, just the idea of Frank doing a song like Marvin's Room is kind of hilarious. Yeah, Drake decided to cop that for sure. It's hilarious, but Drake's interesting because, you know, Larry Graham is, you know, his uncle and, you know, he was the pioneer of slap bass. So that's, you know, pretty interesting musical lineage. But anyway, back to the twos. Yes. So we are jumping into 1982. We are now in the 80s. Production is starting to get quite a bit elevated at this point. We're kind of actually seeing more of a shift into more electronic means of recording. Pristine preamps. Yes. And you actually have kind of some of the earliest uses or like earliest mainstream uses of like drum machines such as the uh, TR-808 from Roland. Or a Lindrum. Yes. The, yes, yes. I mean, the Lindrum was being used kind of even earlier than that, but well, well, but as a movement. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, speaking of the Lindrum, one of the most notable people to use that instrument is none other than Prince Rogers Nelson, who used the Lindrum on, quite frankly, one of his breakthrough records, 1999. Now, he did have a great, and I mean great, debut solo record a few years prior in the late 70s. As a matter of fact, the story goes that Verdine White, Maurice White's brother, was actually posed to produce Prince's debut record, but Prince said, nah, fam, <laughs> and decided to do everything himself at like 18 years old or something. Yeah, that was Prince for sure. Yeah, so he definitely had a, you know, I'm going to do it myself kind of mentality, and I think that kind of paved the way. I guess some modern examples of one man doing it all themselves would be, I don't know, your Jacob Collier's or I don't know, something like that. Jacob, not to, that's actually probably the only good example I can think of today. I'm not saying 
he's the only one. I mean, he's like the best one I could think of. You got Charlie Puth too, but I mean, Charlie Puth's music doesn't live up to his talent. That's what I was kind of saying. I mean, when it comes to, <laughs> to Collier or Prince, I mean, it's pretty. Yeah. You know, I mean, Collier definitely leaned a lot more into jazz even than I think Prince really ever did. Definitely. Prince was more R&B and rock and Funk. stuff like that. Yeah. Funk. Yeah. Definitely. And actually, there was some times where Prince got kind of psychedelic, too. Like he kind of got a little bit like 60s. He had some of that Hendrix blood. Well, yeah. But I mean, even one of his biggest influences was Joni Mitchell. So, I mean, like there was definitely some of that influence in the songwriting. But yeah. And then, as we said before, I mean, Charlie Puth is kind of somebody who, you know, makes music out of light switches. But the music is disappointing in comparison to (laughs) the talent that he has, especially um, yeah, I, I, I just, I'm incredibly frustrated with him, but back to Prince with 1999, maybe the precedent of the whole Y2K kind of thing too. People actually thought that when things switched over that it was going to end and no, this record's great. I mean, 1999 as an album opener, I mean, you can't really get much better than that, but it is followed up with little red Corvette. So, I mean, that one's pretty good. Yeah, so definitely you had some big, big singles. Delirious, too, is on here as well. So I feel like this is kind of one that really got Prince more of like the billboard kind of attention, especially with that 1999 song, which Phil Collins kind of bit off of for Susudio. <laughs> Susudio kind of sounds like the white version of 1999. And the fact that... Hey, now. I mean, it's it's a jam. I will unironically bump Phil Collins all day long. I love that album that it came off of. No Jacket Required. It's a fantastic album in its own right. Um, Has like one more night on it. You know, great stuff from Phil. But you can't tell me that Susudio does not take influence from 1999. No, you can't. With the drums and the synth. And the fact that he didn't get sued is kind of amazing. But I guess... Suing people over similar sounding tracks wasn't really a thing in the 80s because Hall and Oates could have potentially sued Mike Jackson, too, for Billie Jean sounding a lot like I can't go for that, especially in the bass line. But they didn't do that either. So and speaking of Mike Jackson, he also put out an album, which we really can't talk about 1982 or really just big albums in general without discussing this. But yes, as of this year, we have the 40th anniversary of Michael Jackson's Thriller album. Nine tracks of just really the 80s at its best. And interesting thing is, is that a lot of the studio playing was done by Toto. Like members of Toto were all over this record. And so it has that spaciousness that I guess a lot of the Toto records have. The arrangement is very... When you get into that Toto type, yeah, it's very, uh, like you said, spaciness. It's very, they, everything's on cue, you know, it's right on cue. It's, it's in pocket, I guess you could say. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes down to like Jeff Pecoro's like drumming. The drummer, man. It's the drummer. He was everywhere. And I mean, the album's only nine tracks and pretty much every single song on that album was basically a single with, or like a big charting single with the exception of, I think two of them which was, I think, Baby Be Mine, and then The Lady in My Life, which actually that track is extremely underrated in Michael Jackson's catalog, if I'm just going to throw it out there. I mean, it is kind of the slow jam. It's the album closer. So, I mean, it just didn't get maybe nearly the love as your Billie Jean or Beat It or Thriller 
which Rod Temperton, you know, rest in peace, was huge on that as well. So, yeah. And then, of course, uh, Paul dropping in on Girl is Mine, too. Some people make the argument that Paul McCartney outsang Michael Jackson on that song. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Sure. That's kind of a hot take, though. If you actually it, it, a, if yeah. you actually come out amongst music nerd people and you say that Paul McCartney <laughs> had the better vocal on The Girl Is Mine, they're they're going to kind of maybe look at you differently and kind of say, uh, the gig is mine. Right. But I mean, Paul had been doing it for, you know, more than 20 years up until that point. And I guess MJ, too. Now that I think about it, because, you know, they were kind of coming up around. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in time for Halloween, too, man. Like, oh, yeah, no, it's uh, wow, yes, right. just before, yeah. So, I mean, th- this, that's of course when you always hear it. I mean, Thriller is probably the greatest Halloween record of all time, yes, just the song, actually. I mean, I would say there's a couple of other songs that you can throw the in, Monster Mash, Monster <laughs> Mash. yes, yes. There's actually a mix on TikTok, I believe, where they mix all of the Halloween tracks. Oh, including uh, the one by Oingo Bongo, that one? Oh, Dead Man's Party? Yeah, Dead Man's Party. Oh, yeah. Which, you were playing me some of The Cure earlier, which actually put out the album Pornography in 82, kind of sounding like almost the predecessor to, like, New Order or something. Definitely. And uh, the vocalist, Robert, on there, he sounds a lot like Danny Elfman, man. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> if, if, you didn't, catch. if you didn't tell me any differently, I would have been like, wow, I didn't know Danny Elfman sang for The Cure. That's crazy but no oingo boingo is kind of an underrated gem in their own right with that album dead man's party is great just another day is also a really good track too right and then they had some quite questionable songs like the one about liking little girls but oh no i forgot about that song man uh, i love little girls (laughs) that's i don't know how they it was the 80s so yeah yeah I mean, you didn't quite have like to catch a predator, you know, so it's like <laughs> have a seat. Right. And to be honest with you, I'm surprised that like to, I'm surprised to, that they didn't use that in the show. Yeah. No, I'm really surprised, man. Someone should have done it. I'm sure someone has some small YouTuber out there. Oh, has yeah, done I, it. I think that's I think that's how I found the song. Actually, I think I found it on a compilation of like funniest moments or most awkward moments from that show. And um, I think I remember seeing something about somebody using that in like the opening credits. And I'm like, what, what is this song? What, what is this? And yeah, I, I forgot about that song. It was such a meme. I mean, you know, it was, it was right. a meme back then, I'm sure. But it became a meme in the 2010s. And people were like, what's the song? I'm like, what? That's a song? Yeah, but you're not canceling Danny Elfman at this point. No, you're not. Especially after. Yeah. And I don't think anybody's trying to call to cancel Danny Elfman. They're like, no, leave him alone. Like, it's kind of interesting, you know, with like the whole thing about artists and cancel culture affecting artists, but composers kind of slide a little bit. Hey, critics, leave that man alone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh you don't need to remind me of Nostalgia Critics' take on the wall, which is probably one of the worst things I've heard in my life. Basically takes the whole Pink Floyd album, The Wall, and just writes different lyrics and recreates the instrumentation. It, it, it's just, it's just not good. drives it into the wall. Oh. Sorry. You know, you know, <laughs> I'm just here. I'm just supporting character with the puns. Uh, no, I mean, it, it, no, it's, it's definitely cool, man. It's cool. But yeah, with Thriller having so much of the total influence, and then you had 
Toto 4 come out the same year. So Toto was just really in their bag, I guess, in 82 to think that they were all over the Mike Jackson record and they had their own album, which had some of the biggest songs of not only just 82, but just songs that are still being played now, the most obvious being Africa. But then, of course, like Rosanna was also off of that album as well. So they were just on some really great streak going on in in 82 there. But yeah, so. So since we're talking about Pocket. Yeah. Nightfly. Yes. Yes. The Donald Fagan solo record, The Nightfly, which has quite possibly one of my favorite songs on it, which is IGY which just has, if you haven't listened to IGY, you probably should go listen to it just because it's amazing. It's one of the greatest intros of all time. Yeah, I think I remember playing it for you, like for having you or when we were at the studio. Yeah, back where we were like recording slash interning. Yeah, you would play that a lot. And I was like, oh, dude, this song's sick. And I'm sure I've heard it on the radio prior. But, you know, you playing it a lot really accentuated how much I really love that track. It's so good. Well, and, and you know, it never gets old. That no. song, as long as it is, has some of the best replayability. Absolutely. Out of all songs. Yeah, that track is six minutes long, but yet, like, you're just, you're vibing. It feels vi- like three minutes, like two minutes. Yeah, you're vibing with it just because the chords, the way that the road sounds, the groove, how they'll come in more on the chorus. The arrangement's so heavenly. It's such good arrangement. Like, the way it's formatted. It's a marvel of songwriting, especially for a six and a half, six minute song. Very much so. And if you actually look into the lyrics and I guess actually the the title, it's International Geophysical Year. Yep. Yeah. So basically, even if you look at the lyrics of it, it's very much like nostalgic for that time. 50s, right? 50s futurism specifically, I think, is what Donnie was going for here. I came across some people who didn't like that song because it was a little depressing. Oh, maybe because of like the what a wonderful world this will be. I mean, didn't they have like amazing stuff happening in the 80s anyway? Late 70s? Yeah, but I mean. No, uh, well, I guess late 70s were kind of sucky, huh? Well, late 70s, early 80s. This is going to be a, just a little bit of a mini history thing here. Sweet. On the Work Tape podcast, folks. Um, <laughs> but basically, the late 70s, early 80s, it was a little bit tough because you had the situations where you think the gas situation is bad now. Try going up to the gas station, then them saying, we don't got any left. Gas stations completely ran out of gas like numerous times. They had a reputation. So just picture yourself waiting in a line to get to the gas station and then saying, basically, sorry, we're we're out. And, you know, good luck. So that makes IGY lyrically insulting, but also kind of funny at the same time. A little bit, but that was kind of like Donald Fagan's like, he always had a bit of a sense of humor, but... The cool thing about IGY is it sounds so great and sound engineers definitely view it as well because it's used to actually test audio equipment. Yeah, it is like Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's one of my favorite songs sonically. It's so well balanced. Yeah. Well, the thing about Smells Like Teen Spirit, which we just jumped a decade to 92, but... (laughs) Yes, um, we did. That one's a good song because it's got the quiet and loud dynamic. Yeah. um, Who was it? uh, Butch Vig that did the... um, Andy Wallace did the, I guess, the final mix, but Butch is the one that basically produced a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing about that record, actually, with Nirvana being as kind of hardcore grunge and whatnot, it actually does sound really nice. Like, actually, not even just that song, 
The whole record actually sounds really good. Yeah, that's why it's one of the greatest records of all time. Yeah, very and much so. You can't hate on them just because they're simple. It's because no, sonically that album is a marvel. I think in a lot of ways it shares like if you listen to Nightfly and you listen to that, they're different, but they're not that far different either from each other. Yeah, in terms of like the attention to detail in the sonic quality for sure. Cultural impact, obviously, way different. I mean, the yeah, night, way different the, as far as like the yeah, the yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. Um, not to be mean or anything, but the Nightfly didn't kill anybody's career, unlike, <laughs> unlike, um, unlike Nevermind, which killed many bands' careers. <laughs> Hair metal, and it killed. I mean, it didn't really kill Michael Jackson necessarily, but it definitely uh, no, because because <laughs> didn't MJ put out Dangerous in like ninety one or ninety three? Yeah, ninety one, ninety one. Yeah, so no, MJ was good. I mean, except for him getting caught up with maybe or maybe not touching kids, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that a was topic that, that for was another. when that drama <laughs> that was when that drama kind of started to brew up though. So I mean, like sure, so it just was not a good time for Michael. But the album was great. The album was cool. Yeah, you know, the album's great. I remember you telling me that you got into like a new Jack swing phase and that was yes. kind of the Yes. That was one of the albums you listened to. Another great new Jack swing album is anything by New Edition, basically. That's true. And then you could just really deep dive into like Teddy Riley's entire discography, basically. <laughs> He's pretty much the proprietor of New Jack Swing. And then Bruno kind of brought back New Jack too a little bit with Finesse. That's definitely a New Jack Swing track. Oh, he did, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And that's why he got, I think, accused of culturally appropriating, too, because he went on that, like, new Jack swing direction. And then they're like, stop jacking our Jack, basically, is what I'm going to get at. But by the way, since we're talking about the pocket. Yeah. Anthony Jackson, he's the bassist for at least for IGY. I'm not sure if he did it for all of Nightfly, but I believe he did all of Nightfly. Yeah. If not the whole of it. But he's um, he's played with Hiromi. Oh, Yurihara. yeah. Anthony's a fantastic bassist. And you listen to IGY and, you know, I listened to the whole record. I, you know, yeah. Yeah. So that the whole album's great. But Anthony is so in pocket that he does not need to overplay. Right. That bass line's really simple, actually. It's very simple. In comparison to like the rest of the track, like it's do, 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 do. It just, like, and it plays with the roads yeah, very it's, well. It's kind of like a walking bass almost. To be honest with you, the way that he plays bass on that record, it kind of reminds me more of an upright a little bit. Like He's a jazz guy, so yeah. a lot of those jazz guys have that technique. Yeah, the upright kind of sound. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. But I mean, New Frontier off of Nightfly is actually really good too. Like That's a very different direction too. Than- it's not my favorite album, dude, but you don't have to convince me that that record is... It's so good. Oh, yeah. And if y'all haven't listened to it, please go do because you'd be doing your ears a favor. Yes, you uh, will. To listen to that. And honestly, I mean, if you try to claim yourself as a Steely Dan aficionado and you have not heard that record, then I feel like you're almost discredited a little bit because I'm kind of like, you're not going to mess with the solo Donnie. You're just only going to go with the Steely Dan. You know, it's funny. Our Jason, our, you know, the guy we've worked with before, he said something about, Oh, yeah, the Nightfly sounds great, but there was, like, no hits on it. Like, apparently, he was criticizing it because it just didn't have a hit, like a major hit. And I'm like, oh, it didn't really need one. And I don't even really think he was trying to make, like, a... uh, Well, I mean, obviously, he was going to make the best record he could with the new technology. I think I remember saying that that was one of the first records that was 
made with a lot of digital equipment, hence that big change in sound and whatnot. But back over to... Hello, I must be going. Yeah, Phil Collins with his... We talked about Phil Collins before. With We're talking about the Rhodesy guys first. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so Phil Collins, the Hello, I Must Be Going record, I mean, by far the biggest song off of that is actually a cover, which is You Can't Hurry Love. Like, that's without a doubt, like, the biggest song that people are going to immediately know off of that record. But that was really significant. Oh, and I Don't Care Anymore, of course, is the opener of that, which people have definitely heard. But the big kind of significance of that Phil Collins record was, yeah, it was kind of the second solo record from Phil Collins. So actually, Face Value was first with In the Air Tonight and all that in 81. But this one basically kind of cemented him more as like a solo act before No Jacket Required, like pretty much made him a definitive solo pop star in his own right. Because pretty much up until this point, and of course, Face Value, he was just the drummer in Genesis. That's all people really knew him as was just the guy on the kit while, you know, Peter Gabriel was fronting the band. But then Peter Gabriel left to do his own solo thing. You know, he put out one of the best records of the 80s, which was so a few years later. That album is great. Pretty much start to finish. Can't really think of too many like bad songs on there. But yeah, I think with Phil Collins, it's definitely just more of cementing himself as a solo force to be reckoned with and kind of showing his commercial appeal outside of Genesis, despite the fact that he did later make some great songs with Genesis in the 80s, kind of like into commercial success. But right. A couple of mentions, because I don't really listen to these two records. I mean, I, I know of the artists. Sure. Tongue and Chic came out in 82. Right. Uh, by Chic. Oh, go, yes. Go figure. But okay. Yeah, I mean, it's good, but, you know, I prefer Risqué and um, they're self-titled. Yep. Those are really fantastic. Right. Viceroy's We Must Unite. That is a, I think it's a Trojan Records release. Oh, Trojan Records. Okay. Yeah. We never talk about reggae. Yeah. I believe, uh, one second. What's the name of that? There's that band. <laughs> they did roller skates. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like not like UB40 or something. <laughs> no, but it's it's in that same vein, and I don't know why. Oh, uh, Inner Circle. No, yeah. no, 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 not Steel Pulse. Steel Pulse. Yeah. Yeah. Did they release in '82? I'm pretty positive they released in '82, and that one's a good record. Yeah. Let me see. Oh, I think they did, man. Hold Which on. one was it? It's a one with the uh, Your House. Yeah. Uh, hold on, I'm gonna look it. Uh. Yes. True. Okay. True Democracy? Yeah. So, uh, yes. So, yeah. talking about Viceroy's, because you should check out We Must Unite. That's a good record. Of course. Steel Pulse. Yes. Yeah. True Democracy. That one is an amazing record from the beginning to the back. That one, I think, is probably... Well, Peter Tosh's albums are pretty great, but that's easily one of the best albums of... I would say, eh, of all time in the 80s. I wouldn't say necessarily, but... Maybe you could even put it in the the lower tier of that area. Because, I mean, I feel like the best reggae was really from Whalers and other stuff like that. But no, Steel Pulse, quite a force we reckon with. Just as good as the Congos, just as good as anything from that era. True Democracies, I think that's probably one of the best albums of the 80s, actually, come to think of it. It's a good record. You should check it out. Definitely. Yeah. No, I'm always looking to be put on to new records. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm familiar with Steel Pulse and kind of like just a very like surface level kind of knowledge, but yeah, it has a chant a psalm and your house, mm -hmm. those two songs bump. So, all right, well, I'm going to definitely check that out then. Cause 
I'm always, like I said, looking for just more songs, but also just like, especially good reggae. Like, sure. Like, I'm, and it's more rootsy. It's a good blend between 80s reggae and your classic mid late 70s rootsy type reggae. Yeah, because that's kind of how I, I view a lot of reggae is I think a lot of the I don't want to say like it's golden age was kind of in the 70s, but I mean, kind of. I mean, I mean, you could make an argument 60s, 70s. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, because you think of the Trojan records. Yeah. Yeah. But if you were to choose one decade for reggae, yes, the 70s would be. Yeah. That is the golden era. As much as the the late 60s was great, the 70s just did even better. Yeah. Well, because that's like a lot of the Marley records, the Whalers, like. Oh, yeah. Tough Gong, like all that. And we talked about quality, very quality much quality control and uh, just consistency. This isn't even just because they're my favorite band of all time. They are one of the most consistent bands of all time. Yeah. Even after going through crazy lineup changes. I mean, just on top of his game before he died. So. Right. Yeah. So amongst the 80s as well, you had, and as we've mentioned in little bits and pieces, you definitely had more new wave come in, specifically new wave from across the pond, more like the London, England area. Hence, this next group, Duran Duran. Yes. With Rio. Rio. Yes. Once again, another nine-track album. A lot of these great records, Thriller, um, I want to say the Toto 4 album didn't have more than 10 tracks on it. The Nightfly, I think, only has eight tracks on the entire record. Now, some of those ones are like six minutes long, so that makes sense. But a lot of these kind of landmark records are only nine tracks. But I think, you know, in, in a way, it keeps things tight and maybe put some bands in situations where there's just no room for a lot of filler. And the thing about Duran Duran is like, yeah, they very much kind of, though they were actually getting traction considerably before this. Like I said, in the UK, they were really heavy in the club scene out there. They were one of the bands of the UK club scene. But this is, of course, what really put them on like the mainstream stage. And keep in mind, a lot of this music also came to the foreground because MTV was established, I think, in 81. Oh, yes, because, uh, uh, is it Buggle? The Buggles, yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah, fun fact, uh, Hans Zimmer was in that band. I case that I didn't know. Yes, <laughs> I didn't know. Yes, <laughs> yes. Hans Hans Zimmer uh, was. I think the was he the keyboardist in the Buggles? I want to say he was. Hold on a minute. I'm gonna. I'm radio kill the radio star. I'm gonna make sure of this just so I'm not misquoted. But um, oh yes, Hans Zimmer in the first ever video aired on MTV, which was the video kill the radio star. Yes, and he was like keyboardist slash production guy yeah yeah no Hans Zimmerman that guy always had time yeah and actually MTV was founded in 79 actually yeah but um that video was like the song that that I mean that was the first one that launched MTV though yes video killed correct yes that's a very very fitting title absolutely because it did kill a lot of radio stars (laughs) Christopher Cross being probably one of them he got crossed. Ah. <laughs> well, I mean, because, you know, Christopher Cross had all those late 70s hits. You know, he had sailing takes me away. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, I can see why someone got killed. <laughs> and I think while they haven't said that, like that song specifically killed his career, like I think he got interviewed about it and he said, yeah, that that pretty much did me in in terms of like me as well as a couple of other people like me. 
basically, who just didn't have the look for <laughs> MTV and whatnot. But Duran Duran definitely did. They definitely had a lot of flash and like a lot of style. Their videos were actually like pretty risque for the time. And they kind of intentionally made their videos more outlandish, more risque, just to kind of get that. The Cars did the same thing with their album cover and stuff like that. I mean, oh, it, yeah. it was it was such a that has not been no, absent for a long time at this point. No, that's definitely not. But you know what? A really good and non-sexual album cover because we <laughs> can't get on with this one. New Gold Dream, Simple Minds. Yeah, okay. That one's fantastic. Promised you a miracle. Big Sleep. That record is, I think, is arguably, eh, some people say it's not their favorite Simple Minds record, but it's definitely in the top two or top three. That one's my favorite, though. That one is more U2-esque. It's like a mix between U2 and Duran. Mm. It's a synthy record, but it's also very, you know, it's your classic post-punk as well. And some people accuse it of overproduction, but that's kind of weird, like, to say in the 80s. When like almost everything sounded overproduced. So I don't know who the heck is saying stuff like that. Right. But um, no, that record's a time capsule as well. And it's really good. It's melancholic. Mm-hmm. It's not as happy-go-lucky as... Actually, AHA got pretty melancholic as well. A lot of those bands, they were pretty depressing. Well, I mean, if you think about the fact that they don't get a lot of sun out there. I've always said depressing places make for great music. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a big part of it. I mean... I would venture to say the Smiths kind of were somebody to really capitalize on that. Oh, no wonder he knows he's miserable now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And he's always like talking about kicking people in the eye or punching them in the eye. I don't know. Right. Kick in the eye. Right. Is is that what he does to non-vegans? Is that what he does? (laughs) Is he miserable because he's vegan too? Now he knows how Joan of Arc felt. Nah. No, I can't say that he's miserable because he's vegan. A lot of vegan people are actually really happy. But I mean, I'm just, I don't know. It's Meat is murder, according to him. Right. But that's three years from now. Yes. (laughs) We'll get to the fives later. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. So uh, Dreaming by Kate Bush. That one is fantastic. I'm not really familiar as far, you know, like Cloud Busting. And there's some other songs running up the hill, obviously, because everyone talks about that one. But Dreaming is a great record. And... I urge everyone to listen to that one. Mm-hmm. And then Combat Rock. Yes. Sorry, Kate. I know I gave you like such a small slot. You're amazing. But you have other albums we want to talk about. Right. And yeah, I mean, you dedicated an entire episode already to Running Up the Hill. So yes, which we love you, Kate. You're y- amazing. Yeah. Which that song just got ran into the ground. But it's so good. It's, it is good. It's one of those few songs where it's cool that it got overplayed. It is cool. I'm just like. I'm not going to get into it, but like basically it just got driven into the ground and then just some like other TikTok things too. I'm just like, oh, but, (laughs) but yes, combat. Yeah. So combat rock was actually kind of the last really good clash record. I agree. Because then they made cut the crap, which was actual crap. So that was (laughs) so what a fitting title for that. And actually, the reason why that album was a train wreck mostly had to do with actually some production things. But then a lot of members left, like a lot of the OG members of The Clash left. I want to say like their bass player left. As well as like their drummer left. Is too. it Paul Simonon? Simonon? Yeah. I don't even know how to say his last name. <laughs> Sound like the Michael Jackson record trying to say his last name. 
But uh, Paul synonym. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. So the Clash's combat rock, yeah, is known by fans and known by just music listeners as pretty much the last great Clash record. The fans all like it. <laughs> yeah, that song is great. Uh, I love Rock the Casbah. I love that. That has one of the that groove is. It's so infectious. It's a good ripoff of Chic. Not every element of it is chic, but it's a good mishmash of disco. And that was a song when I first heard by them or that I found out was by The Clash. It surprised me because I was like, that's The Clash. Yeah. Well, The Clash, I feel like, yes, they did get known for being pretty much the definitive punk band for a while that was out of the UK, along with obviously acts like the Sex Pistols and stuff like that. Um, They kind of were all coming up about the same time in the 70s. And of course... The Clash's like most definitive record, which is London Calling, came out like a couple years before. But actually, The Clash, um, there's a track that's even on London Calling that they pay homage and they're actually willing to experiment with a lot of different genres. Like there's some stuff that they did that sounded like ska. What is it? Rudy Can't Fail. That's basically a ska track. Pretty much. It has the horns. It has the basic rhythm. And I think that's just because ska was so big in the UK for a long time because you had people immigrating from Jamaica over to the United Kingdom. And they basically brought all the music that they were doing in Jamaica over to the UK. And then a lot of like the working class. I mean, that's a different. (laughs) Uh, That's past the duchy back. Yeah, it wasn't a new wave band, but still. But I mean, actually, past the duchy was kind of known even more in the consciousness of, of course, the Scooby-Doo film. And actually, Bruno Mars kind of sampled that, too, actually, I think on. As he should. Yeah, he has a track. <laughs> he has a track on Unorthodox Jukebox, I believe it's called um, Show Me. That's basically like a mm-hmm. reggae track. Honestly, Bruno actually doesn't sound too bad doing reggae. No, he doesn't sound too bad. And coming from me. No, he doesn't sound too bad doing it. Well, because, yeah, he had that track with, uh, was it Damien Marley? It was Liquor Store Blues, I think, was a track that he had with Damien Marley, I think, on it. The name would escape me, but I mean, the title would escape me, but yeah, obviously but, knowing Damien, yeah. I believe I've heard that pairing before. Well, uh, if you're going to be really honest, the Marleys are everywhere, dude. They're so everywhere. It's like this weird estate like you just can't get away from. <laughs> and, and, I, and, you know, I, I'm just, I'm such a purist when it comes to the Whalers. I'm like... Yeah. Marley, Tosh, and Livingston. Like, yeah. I mean, and we can go further to the Barrett Brothers because one of the best rhythm sections of all time, um, that band, we're going to have to do a series on the Whalers. But I just, yeah, my opinion on the children, I don't like to bash on children, <laughs> but I'm probably going to bash on the children. <laughs> hey, and, and you know, Ziggy's great. I mean, Ziggy's fantastic. He's like the pop guy. Yeah. Sometimes a little bit more pure in his reggae style, kind of more old school. And sometimes I like that, like the Melody Makers. I mean, that was some good stuff. But Damien, the other brothers were more, in my opinion, pushing boundaries. Yeah. They're more responsible, in my opinion, for modern reggae, if you can call it that. Yeah. But they did push the genre forward. It wasn't really what I liked. Yeah. But they pushed it forward. I mean, Mattis Yahoo, we can get into that stuff another time. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. But uh, yeah, uh, UK reggae and uh, yeah. new wave. Right. And then Should I Stay or Should I Go is off of Combat Rock 2, which is once again, another definitive song of not only just like the 80s, but The mm-hmm. Clash as a whole. And yeah, I mean, like I said, it was just kind of, I don't want to say that 
well, people didn't know that it was like the end of an era, but pretty much because of how they followed up, it was pretty much the end of an era. I'm throwing a gem your way because no one ever, 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 ever talks about these guys. All right, let me go ahead. And they're a lot like Pretenders and Smiths. All right, what's that? And The Cure. So, Orange Juice. Okay. You Can't Hide Your Love Forever from 82. That one's really good. Uh-huh. Also, some very talking heads-isms yeah. as well. I think the record is not even. I think there are some better parts than others, but it's a very interesting, um, what would you say, crate find. Okay, so it's definitely more for like the crate digging people. Like It's a good mix of crate digging, and it still fits a little bit of the mainstream vibe, but it's not like super underground, like no one's ever listened to it. Of course not, but yeah, no one talks about orange juice. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just one of those things. No, nah, it's cool. Like definitely get, you know, more on like, you know, the hidden gems. And I mean, OMD is much more well known mm-hmm. than orange juice. So that's something you can check out when you get a chance. No, I, I definitely do, man. Like that would be great. But think Pretenders, Smiths, Cure, that's Okay. Yeah, so definitely more in Talking that. Heads, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Earlier Talking Heads, because that came in 82, so yeah. I'm talking about the Talking Heads from like, no, I'd say still from, I would say before Remain in Light. Remain in Light is 80. Yeah, so before okay. that. I mean, the, the, oh, the okay. Talking Heads, because oh, okay. that album is, yeah. You Can't Hide Your Love is, mm. is 82, but as far as Talking Heads-isms are concerned, oh, I'm gotcha. thinking- late 70s talking heads and, and okay. not 80 and up gotcha like psycho killer talking heads right but more songs about food when's that one from uh, i think it's 77 well talking heads self-titled 77 but i forgot about more songs about food i'm not sure if that's 78 or something or maybe later anyway yeah so it's more 70s talking heads if we're talking about style mm-hmm. oh don't forget modern english after the snow yes check that one out that one's also good I definitely got to. And then, of course, since I am going to sprinkle a little bit of R&B in this conversation. Do it. You had one of the last albums from Marvin Gaye in 82, which is Midnight Love, which, to be honest with you, as much of a Marvin fan as I am, there's a few albums from him that I still haven't really given proper deep dives into, mostly being like, hello, my dear, like, um, not hello, my dear, or is it goodbye, my dear, or uh, or Here My Dear, that's the name of the album. Here My Dear is the one that he had to give up because he got divorced. So he had to give up like a lot of the publishing and royalties off of that one. It's Here My Dear, that's what it's called. Ironic. Right, and actually people have said that that's a fantastic album in its own right. While it's depressing, it's still a good album. But Midnight Love was kind of the comeback because it had sexual healing on it. And sexual healing was the only time that Marvin Gaye got a Grammy. <laughs> They gave it to him for sexual healing. <laughs> you under that's the, mm, I, I, that that that's incredibly frustrating. I mean, that's almost as frustrating as okay, Nas dropping Illmatic in the '90s, and then he's only getting a Grammy recently for King's Disease. At least he didn't get murdered. That's very, <laughs> by his dad. Oh gosh, he got murdered by his dad, dude. Um, that's what happened because he was like, I think staying at his family's house and his dad is a preacher and didn't like, Mm. you know what he was doing. There was a lot of childhood trauma that came from Marvin Gaye's career and actually upbringing what led to his career very much like the Jacksons or kind of one of those, you know, very ugly situations. Yeah. But at least the difference was, is that like Joe Jackson was pushing for them to be in music like yeah 
the way he did it was not good, but at least it was still like, you know, hey, you know, I just want you guys to be the best. So I'm going <laughs> to so I'm going to like beat records out of you, essentially. Um, but the Marvin Gaye situation is way different because, like I said, he was a preacher and there. So but anyway, speaking of preaching, number of the beast. Oh, yeah. Some Iron Maiden, bro. I mean, Iron Maiden's a band that in a way they get their flowers from mostly just people who really know rock like that, who know rock and know metal. But when you're talking about like a lot of great 80s bands, like I feel like sometimes they still don't get nearly as much credit as they should. At least Iron Maiden doesn't. Because Iron Maiden's actually been pretty consistent too. They've done a lot of good tours and I think with Number of the Beast, that was kind of their first album with Bruce Dickinson as their vocalist, which completely changed their sound because with Bruce Dickinson, he had more of that operatic, grandiose kind of sound. And actually, it has the Number of the Beast has two amazing songs from Iron Maiden and Steve Harris carries that band. The guitarist? The bassist. Oh, the bassist. But it is a bass guitar, so yes, he is yes. a guitarist of some kind. Yeah, they were one of the few bands that actually played like Fenders. That They played metal on Fender guitars. Oh, that's so true. Wow, that's a very niche thing to talk about. Right, because I remember seeing a live footage of them, I think, in like Brazil or something, which Brazil always has like, the best crowds. But no, the, um, the guitarists of Iron Maiden play Stratocasters. Um, that or Jacksons. They may have been Jacksons. I don't know. I mean, Jackson's clearly metal, but Strat. Well, yeah, no, <laughs> you I, can, by the way, play. I'm, I'm being a. Um... No, I, I'm pretty sure, though. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, though, at least in some live footage that they were playing Strats, bro. So, yeah, no, you definitely can. You just might want to get that modified or make sure it's ready for. You need to have humbuckers. That's oh, all yeah, I can tell you. De- definitely. <laughs> but but to kind of um, really conclude things with that maiden record, um, you have Number of the Beast, of course, which is the self-titled. But then you also have Run to the Hills, which is a really good track, too. Not running up that hill. Run no, to the hills. run to the hills. Yes. Just have to make sure that was clear yes, for people. Yes, which is just a great song. It's a metal anthem, but it's actually extremely deep. It's about manifest destiny and colonization amongst the Native American people, which is odd coming from an English band. <laughs> An English band is going to make a song about the horrors of colonization amongst tribal people, indigenous people, and you're... I I mean, mean, English people were indigenous at one point, too. I mean, are we all still indigenous? That's a very good question. That's a very good... That's a very good point. I'm just sensing irony, you know? It's kind of like when Coldplay made that, like, India-inspired video for um, Him for the Weekend. Or whatever, where they had that Indian aesthetic to their thing. They went to like the color festival that's in India. And then people point out, well, you know, you did rule over them for God knows how long. They used so, to rule the world. Right. And then, you know. See the fear in it, the enemy's eyes. Yeah. And yeah, it's friggin'. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. You know that like. And now we're lost. Do you know that Do you know that the UK made tikka masala its national dish? Oh, you know, I knew of that. And it makes sense why. <laughs> Whenever I hear about like English stuff and then like I hear tikka masala, I'm like, yeah, what the heck? I, having Indian food in England is actually pretty next level, though. I got to say, like, Ooh, actually, I'm honestly no cap. I want to try that. Yeah, I had the great pleasure of actually going to a couple Indian spots and I will say the food was excellent. But yeah, so if 72 was kind of, you know, big in terms of 
the stylistic changes and then 82 even more so because 82 especially with like i said the production getting a lot better more digital recordings and whatnot a kind of shift a little bit in culture because with 72 you kind of had the echoes of vietnam 82 was definitely a lot more cold war and more fears of like communism and uh, being at a real tension spot with russia which i guess look how things change because now we're still at somewhat of a tension spot with Russia, but who knows, maybe, hopefully, maybe, uh, well, actually, hopefully, you know, things can get resolved somewhat peacefully. Hopefully we can sing IGY non-ironically. Yeah. What I was going to say is hopefully the tension leads to some good music. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. What a wonderful world is. But, um, no, 82 is just, um, like I said, 82 is Bro, just... a thriller? I mean, it was a peak, because I almost wanted to say from 72 to 82, was there a plateau? And I'm like, mm, no. I'd say there's a peak happening with the yeah. 80s. Well, it's just because thriller was so massive. It was like... So a, good. It's just a huge cultural shift. And then, of course, with 82, obviously, as I stated, you know, MTV was more of a prominent factor in what songs were going to be hits and what songs weren't. Yeah. Yeah, and you, and you had to... And you did have to have like the look and the the sound. So, mm -hmm. but um, I, yeah, I think that's a good spot to leave it at. And uh, the next one's the ninety twos. And as much as I bash on it, we will have ninety two albums. We we are gonna do ninety two albums. We're totally doing it. I mean, who else doesn't <laughs> want to hear about pavement? <laughs> I mean, who who is pavement? Right. You might ask. Who knows pavement? <laughs> right. And then, I mean, you think of 92. I mean, we do have the chronic. Yes, we do have chronic. We do have um, Nevermind. We do, or Nevermind's 91. Ah. It's okay. It's okay. We do have the chronic. We have actually Wish by The Cure is 92. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, The Cure did have their 90 spout. Yep. Yeah. So we'll get into that. We don't want to give them too much. Right. So we'll leave it with uh, pavement and uh, that. Yeah. But this is uh, going to conclude another episode of The Work Tape. Once again, Money Mitchell on the mic. It's also Isaac Grover. What's up? Yes. And keep joining us, man, as we continue to take you on a musical journey through these decades and talking about some landmark albums that I think are still influencing many a musician today. So. All right. Much peace and love. We appreciate y'all. Peace. Catch you later.